0: everybody, this is Al Nash from the Direction U Empowerment Dynasty and you're listening to the Unapologetic Women podcast, the show for female leaders who love to live their legacies unleashed, unlimited and unafraid. If this is a community you would like to be part of, visit directionu.co forward slash unapologetic. Today we're talking about the power in heart conversations with Leah Zimmerman. Leah helps mission-driven founders, entrepreneurs, business owners, and families get out of their own way so that they can have conversations they need to live life their way, so that they can have a big impact through their creative endeavors while enjoying deep and rewarding relationships. Leah's last pursuit has been finding her voice, the freedom to express herself, and empowering others to do the same. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is Leah.
1: Okay, so just because we've been talking before the time now, I'm really excited and I want to almost rush this conversation (laughs) to get to where we were. And I'm finding this in all of these interviews is that the moment we get on a call, we immediately connect and we start just delving into the stuff that matters instead of the normal... Titty tatty, that we were all conditioned to do, and then I'm like, we have to press record. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is what people need to hear. Yep. Um, Leah, you knew my world, and it was again that introduction made by somebody else, and coming onto this call with with just real curiosity and and an openness to connect, and then falling madly in love with you from the very first. <laughs> conversation and crushing on you sensationally which is um, such a privilege of where I'm finding myself at the moment in life and also attracting women who have gone through fire who have done some serious work on themselves to mm-hmm. then start showing up unapologetically in this world so I want to say Thank you for entering my world and allowing me entrance into yours. Yeah, thank you for preparing. coming into
2: mine and for welcoming me. It's a great connection and isn't oh. it some kind of miracle that we can do this? It from past to future, <laughs> from one side, one hemisphere to another, one side of the world to another. It's amazing, isn't
1: it? I, I have to still wrap my mind around that sometimes because On the one hand, I'm so resistant to technology and and wanting to go, no, leave me in my cave. And then I wake up in the mornings and I go, oh my God, just the people that I have met through social media, through connections, through Zoom, through all of the things that we say life happened to us, but really life happened for us and awakening to everything in this life is a miracle. Like literally everything in this life is a miracle. Yes. And yes. how miraculous life feels when you start acknowledging that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just look at you. Freaking fabulous, inspiring, <laughs> badass. And yep. what does unapologetic mean to you? It's just go there. I,
2: um, I love that you use it. And I love that it's a term. I hadn't actually thought about it until... And I don't know that I would think of myself as someone all unapologetic, but as I reflect on it, I'm like, you know, there was a time in my life where I used to say sorry a lot. And I I work with seventh graders a lot. I've worked with kids for preparing for bar bat mitzvah. And there's a kind of student, often female, not only, but often, who will make a mistake of oh, sorry, sorry. Wait, no, Sorry. It's sorry. And I feel like that was me at some point. And if I didn't say it every time, I was still thinking it. Like somehow I'm letting someone down. I did something wrong. I'm supposed to do it another way. There's something somebody wants of me. There's a way to expect. There's something I'm supposed to deliver. I'm sorry I didn't get it right. And a lot of times it's myself. I do remember my voice teacher in my 20s telling me to stop stop being like that. Like I was interrupting myself all the time to correct and to, to fix it and to do it right. So it's, um, I guess what it's meaning to me is, oh, something really shifted because it's so not even a part of my vocabulary anymore to think about myself that way.
1: Yeah.
2: I don't think about needing to apologize and I don't think about not needing to apologize.
1: It's so interesting. I can't remember which book I read, but I read that we are conditioned to apologize, especially as women. Mm -hmm. And one of the recommendations was to track whenever I would say, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Because we're raised to be polite. And when I started realizing how frequently I was saying sorry for nothing to be sorry about, you know, I would be on my bicycle um, on a single track and somebody would step aside and I would say, oh, sorry. (laughs) apologizing for my presence. Um, or or saying something and then go, oh, sorry, apologizing for my thoughts. And that was such a huge wake-up call for me as how we are conditioned. And we we call it polite, but it's really apologizing for self. It's apologizing for our presence, for Mm -hmm. taking up space in the world, for having our own thoughts, for being different from other people. And so when I first stumbled onto unapologetic, for me it was, What did it take for me to reclaim myself and then stop apologizing for who I am as a woman, as a person, as Mm -hmm. a businesswoman, as as all of these things? And that took me a long time, like a serious (laughs) time to take. Tell me a little bit more about your journey that it it takes. Took for you to get to that stage of, hey, I'm Leah and I'm freaking fabulous and I love who I am and my (laughs) voice is deserving of being heard. And this is what I take a stand for in life. There's so much,
2: so much along that journey. Listening to you though, you know, I work on difficult conversations. So the significance of an apology and what it really can do and what it can really mean is very live for me. And I wonder how much of that is related to why I stopped saying sorry when it wasn't related to actually requiring asking for forgiveness. Because there is a moment where we need to, a sorry is a kind of a subservience, but it's, it's also just a kind of way of saying, I take a hit to the ego for having done something incorrectly or for having hurt you. And I do that as a way of raising up you and my value of our relationship, right? There's a way in which it's yielding. That's what I was looking for. You're yielding and you're listening. I care more about how you feel and enough to acknowledge that I've done something wrong. And so I'm going to offer this apology and, it, and it's sacred. And I think because of that, I stop also wanting to say, I'm sorry for things that are not actually related to that. If I'm not really ready to yield, why should, I, I don't need to yield all the time. So I think not yielding is an ongoing thing because there are so many small ways in which I yield. And I did realize that I'm fighting a battle. No one's fighting against me. My husband was like, yeah, that wasn't an issue. <laughs> I not have to be upset about that or whatever it is that I would claim. But it's not as much right now. And the journey to be in this place where I am just me, I, I think there's a part of me that was never apologetic. I mean, there's a part of me that was willing to stand up and yell at my third grade teacher because I thought she was disrespectful or my fifth grade teacher when I thought she was bullying a child. And I don't, I remember the third grade one. I didn't remember the fifth grade one. I think I might've told you that story. And mm-hmm. and there are parts of me that I always have had this need to speak a truth and I've not been able to hold that in. And I don't think I've ever apologized for it when I needed to do it, but I have felt bad. I have felt um, you know, I've cried to make it because it's emotional. It's difficult to do. Uh, and there's a part of that, that I don't know is completely gone, but it really had a literal journey to reclaim my voice. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to sing, and I really wanted to be able to speak up and somewhere I was around 11 or 12. I would speak up and yell back at my mom because she could be very reactionary and it was unfair and unjust. And I really got squashed by the authoritarian presence the way my dad had it at the time in the house. And if I was upset and it was unfair and I was crying, I got sent to my room to cry into my pillow. And I, I mean, you're, but, but my parents said, when you're an adult, you can do it your way. So I started taking notes on what my way would be. I had this idea that the adults were not fair and the adults were not doing things right. They were not raising up the children. They were not supporting them and they were children were humans. I didn't, the age difference didn't stand out in my mind so much that all of a sudden that means they get to talk to us however they want. And then you hear, I I grew up in a religious environment. You must respect your parents. I was like, but they don't respect me. I, I have to respect them when they haven't respected me. So there was always a sort of rebelliousness in me that said, I deserve that respect and I'm going to speak up for it and I'm going to speak up for what I want. And I, and I did that, but I did that in this very small way while yielding and yielding and yielding to all the other little ways around me. So that when I got to being a teacher in the classroom, after I, uh, that's what I wanted to do because I needed to do it my way. I had this little voice. tell okay, everybody, it's time to sit down. You hear my voice as it's very high, timbre, and even more so. It didn't work. That doesn't get kids to listen. To be an authority was going to mean that I was going to do to others what I resisted and resented having done to me. And that was really hard for me to step into. So I had to come to terms with power and control and authority and figure out what does it mean to be outspoken? No, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. What does it mean to be able to speak out without being outspoken? And what does it mean to be able to be powerful without being overpowering? Because trying not to be overpowering and trying not to be outspoken was costing me so much. I had closed jaw. I had so much jaw tension and pain. So literally clamping down my voice that I had to get um, surgery, orthodonture, and physical therapy for a year to reset the whole, not in that order, to reset the whole system. And I had to learn how to step into myself and be able to just say to a classroom, it's time to sit down. It works so much better. Or if I use the same phrase, okay, everybody, it's time to sit down, right? It's really different than, okay, everybody, it's time to sit down, which is why I say it's not what you say or how you say it. It's who you are being when you say it. And this is apologetic. Okay, everybody, it's time to sit down. I'm not gonna really assert my authority because I don't wanna hurt your feelings. I'm gonna feel sexy and bad about it because I want you to feel good. But uh um, you know, I'm not really owning my powers, of course you're not really gonna listen to me, are you? <laughs> but it was so uncomfortable. <laughs> Just that power. That's so lovely. But we do that in so many different ways. We don't understand it. And so I was 23, the first workshop that I was invited into by one of those parents into a voice workshop and an acting workshop. And because I loved theater, that worked for me. And it is through my theatrical ambitions and my leadership in the classroom ambitions each helped and feed the other that I found a way to reclaim authority that I could be an authority because I could be a kind authority. I could be a compassionate authority. I could be an empathetic leader and lead at the same time. I didn't have to apologize for my authority or for owning the classroom or the space or the stage. I could do all of that, claim it, but I could do it in a way that was collaborative. And I think as I say it out loud, finding that collaborative stance and finding how much more I could empower others by being fully myself is what then accelerated the rest of the journey and continues. And I'd say another thing that happened that was a big thing for me was I became a mom. And I thought, okay, holding this baby, what do I want most for this baby? Oh, I want her to be able to trust herself. Yeah, okay. Well, that means I have to start trusting myself now. <laughs> yeah and and that was a big determinant for me too who did i want to be because who was i want who who did i want my child to become
1: yeah so much gold like so much like we could literally just pull that piece apart for (laughs) for two hours if not more um and so there's a there's a few things that i want to highlight in what you've just said and shared with us and thank you so deeply for your eloquent way in in communicating this One of them is sacredness. And that is a word that I have started bringing back into my life, having a sacred yes and a sacred no, making relationships sacred, relationships with others, relationship with myself, relationship with my food. Sacredness has been lost for such a huge part of the world. And everything is just, It's you know, I have a... mm, Wishy-washy relationship with life, and and it's okay. It's just so flimsy, and 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 kind of like whatever I'm feeling in the moment, and go with the flow. Mm-hmm. The sacredness is what really brings us to power. Yeah, lovely, and, and also right, and and the tone. I talk about setting the tone, and and when we set the tone, it's about understanding what is the frequency that we are vibrating. And then taking responsibility for that frequency and we get to set that tone for everybody around us, especially for our children because they calibrate to our tone as the leaders. And
2: it's so when, key what you said because whoever is the leader sets, the energy you bring is the energy everyone's going to get. And you're calling it setting the tone, but it is, you're going to, you And that was one of the things about being a teacher. Every time you walk in the classroom, you meet yourself there. Yeah. And the good teachers are the ones who go in and say, okay, the kids were like this today. And that might be that they came in like this, and you can't see me if you're just listening, but let's say it's like, ah, yeah, my hands are doing a thing. And then you pick up their energy and you reflect that back. Guess what happens? More, ah! The teacher's the one who has to come bring that calm and peacefulness, right? Mm -hmm. so and there are days where it's not them it starts with the fact that you're impatient and you have tons of things on your mind and the administration's on your back for certain things and there are so many demands coming you from 10 million areas and you've got 26 kids and they all have different things in the way of being able to become good readers and then that's the tone you're setting and the same thing with parenting but in leadership every time you step in the room you meet yourself there yeah
1: And that's why I talk about self-leadership rather than leadership, Uh because I think it is (laughs) time for people to understand they're so focused on leadership, which is external to themselves and not taking the responsibility that if we all focus on self-leadership, we are all taking responsibility for our personal well-being, our greatness and our happiness. And in that, we collaborate with others in actually creating greatness for all. And therefore, we no longer blame or shame others for their leadership skills. Because, honey, if you're choosing to follow somebody that you are actually not believing in or that you are not calibrating to, that's on you. That's your self-leadership that needs to be questioned. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that's a <laughs> hard for people to swallow. But the mm-hmm. other thing I want to pick up on, Leah, which is so critical, is the voice when we speak. And when I started tapping into work of outgrowing fear and listening to the pitch of voice, especially as women, you know, we are all conditioned to the speaker. And in that, we're not grounding ourselves in certainty. Mm-hmm. I love how you brought I that in I had so as well. many
2: of those habits. Uh, I had the going up at the end of the sentence, that is equivocating. You have a way of like, not, and because I could be interrupted and criticized so easily in my upbringing, I had a mumbling, a dropping off at the end of sentences, all kinds of ways of not putting my, my centeredness and not making the word sacred by putting them out there, but yielding them to whatever anybody else might have to say. Right, right, right. But, you know, that's what I have to say because I couldn't not speak. I sit here dying to be able to be someone who can be quiet. And there's so much power and quiet. (laughs) And I love that about coaching because you can't tell from the way I'm showing up right now, but coaching is where I get to really be more powerful and quiet, which is different than if I fall into advising mode because I have some clients who I'm a consultant advisor also. Mm -hmm. But when I'm really coaching or when I'm doing my interviews, I get to really be powerfully quiet. And it's still like my, my goal in life because I... I can't seem to not say things, but I would say it and have this feel like I had to say it, but I'd yield and equivocate in so many ways because I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. I don't want to create a conflict. I'm about to get criticized. I want to I want to not have it be something too much out there that can be pushed back against. And a lot less of that now, by the way, you can yes. just ask me. That.
1: <laughs> so, so one of the things that I want to ask you, because this could help a lot of our listeners, because people get really triggered by this. I I remember when I first heard about that you are asking for permission or you're not willing to stake yourself to what you are saying, is the going up at the end of the sentence. And when I first realized and listened to my own recordings, I was like, oh, my God, I do it all the time. And being an achiever, there was a huge trigger in that for me, which I just Mm -hmm. kind of worked through because I was like, but I'm committed to getting rid of this. I'm committed to actually owning my power. However, when I started talking about it, especially with other women, they would not lean into the trigger. They would just get insulted and leave, which is human as well. But like me, you chose to lean into the trigger. You chose to kind of go, well, actually, no, I don't want that anymore. Is there a technique of, for me, it's always about, oh, that's interesting that I'm doing it. I just bring that to my internal conversation, which takes the edge off, and then I can lean into the trigger. Do you have any techniques that you use that actually help you to lean into your triggers?
2: That's a, what what a great question. I think it also depends how you discover them. So just being told my voice was doing something wasn't particularly helpful. But why, because it was an acting class, one of the things that I witnessed was that the coach would get us more comfortable and help us step into the vulnerability. That going up at the end of the sentence is a way, it's a a vulnerability thing, right? I don't want to show my, I'm letting it affect how I speak. So one of the things I could say is instead of highlighting the outcome, which is going up, saying, I heard something in that, or your voice went up, what was that? and helping someone tease out right what is that so the first thing I wanted was what what was that what was that for me right but usually it's some kind of vulnerability and the thing that I witnessed is when we take courage to accept the vulnerability and stand in it then we still feel the same thing that made us go up that part we can't get rid of but now we've showed up with courage to say it and the what happens is when you show up with the courage to say it, the people around you can't tell that you feel that vulnerability, whereas going up at the end of the sentence gives it away. So the the trick that I have for understanding these triggers now is when someone can feed something like that back to me, it's like I'm giving it away instead of stepping into it. And it's when we can step into it with courage whatever is that makes us feel super vulnerable and uncomfortable when we can recognize it and own it and then show up to it that people can't see it we can feel it but people can't see it and that kind of I call that the vulnerability paradox when it came to recognize this that that which makes us feel weak uncertain uncomfortable that which we want to pull away from is actually the thing that holds the seed of like nuclear atomic power, that if we step into it will become explosive. I wasn't giving that up. I was like, okay, well then I just gotta do it. And so I always hear it just as a new challenge, just how to own that vulnerability. And what I learned from doing this in theater and the gift I had of going through this theatrical training that I did, was that when someone steps into the most vulnerable moment as a character, we see the character, we don't, and the character's world, we don't see the discomfort of the actor letting themselves be there. In fact, the moments that most grip you on stage are in theater um, or in the movies that aren't the ones where you go, wow, look at them You're doing a great job. The ones where you go, well, I was, oh my God, or you start crying. It's because the actor allowed themselves to be emotionally exposed. And the vulnerability that takes and it's practiced. And for some actors, that doesn't mean they have it elsewhere in their life. It means that they feel safe inside a character to be able to do it. I took that and I said, oh, I think that works in regular life too. If I actually stand in it, what they see is that character, they see the character they create in their minds. They don't, can't see into what I'm doing. But if I start saying, yeah, but you know, okay, right? My, eyes, my hands are doing this. My eyes are doing this. And my voice is going all over. Everyone's going to go, well, she's not really strong. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She's not decisive. I'm giving it away. Or if I stand in that discomfort of being decisive or having to make a statement, hold the eye contact, breathe from my belly, And I might be thinking, holy shit, all the while inside, but I go ahead and I step into it, it's not visible. The courage and the strength is what's visible. So that paradox, I hope I've explained it fairly well, but that paradox is what I'd say is the biggest tool that I've embraced Mm -hmm. and allowing myself to handle those things.
1: There's a little part inside of me that's jumping up and down with excitement at the moment. (laughs) Um, because as you are speaking I'm hearing myself reflected almost in a parallel universe to you Mm -hmm. in that you speak about vulnerability holding the nucleus of your power charge, I speak of fear holding the nucleus Mm -hmm. of your power which we outgrow Uh and how acting was a platform for you to get so many of your personal growth insights and and you know realizations and for me it was sports and dancing and at the end of the day it's that understanding that life gives us everything that we as individuals need to evolve into our most self-actualized space and i want the listeners to to maybe just take this from from this piece of the conversation. What is life showing you of how to self-actualize? When you stop focusing on the problems that you're experiencing and rather look at the golden nuggets along your entire journey, what is the learning that you get? What is the wisdom that you get? Where is it that you get to reclaim yourself in all of that? Because Mm -hmm. it's just blowing my mind at the moment how – Similar language we use. Understanding, we've only had one conversation before. Mm -hmm. We are talking about decades of work that we have created and are living, breathing, and putting out into the world. So many similarities, even though we are gazillions of miles apart we grew up in completely different (laughs) cultures in completely different parts of the world we're sitting in different parts of the world it's not even the same day (laughs) like you're on Monday and I'm on Monday Uh And, and yet it's like we're living twin lives and and kind of getting to so much of the same awarenesses at this time it's just
0: beautiful
1: and magical and miraculous again
2: because it's something universal that we've both tapped into it's not like it's me over here and you over there it's because it's all there universal for all of us to access and we found our access points and so those similarities occurred striking to me is that it's through performance and it's probably for me it was definitely the particular coach that I had it was his approach to coaching us in theater was an I felt like I was in a human uh, leadership class and he actually did coach leadership. Um, That's where I got the idea to become a coach because the studio moved towards coaching people in corporate down the road. And I had a great model for how to do that in this very like high demand, but I'm going to raise you, help you reach it, which was always this, that was my way that I started writing about when I was 10. And I've always been pursuing, how do you lead powerfully? in a way that people feel helps them be better and helps them reach what they wanna do. This was the dissonance that I had felt as a child. And it was through performance that I, and it's because of the wanting to perform that I'm challenged every time. Cause there's always a new frontier, a new place where I hold myself back, a new level of fear, the fear, whether you call it the fear or the vulnerability of being in that moment of fear the sense of weakness, the sense of I can't do this. There are also the vulnerability can show up and some failure, something hasn't gone the way you thought it should go, those kinds of things to show up in life. And so it's different for different people where well, they show up. But the the drive that I needed to do those performing things because they were just in my blood, I think that was my gift. I thought it was a curse when I was this pudgy, short, teen dancer in the 80s at a time when everything was Balanchine and and tall and lithe and skinny was what you had to be and that wasn't me and I'm busty and I'm curvy and so who why would some why would God give me this passion to dance when I don't have the body for it I don't get to do it and now I say "Well, well this is the greatest gift because that passion to dance turned into a passion for performing on stage acting and singing as well and pursuing that performance Made me that plus being in the classroom made me face myself over and over and over and over. And it's only in facing myself. And because I had that drive to keep getting up there and doing it, to keep getting up there and doing it, that I, I kept getting up there and doing it. Because otherwise, why would I bother? I'll, I go into an audition and my voice, my voice throve, I froze. I really literally had voice issues that were related to these closing down of my, my figurative voice. And, and I just would sit and cry and complain and go back and do it again.
1: (laughs) Life is kind that way. Life really is kind that way. Life always gives us passion for our greatest learning, for our greatest growth. And it's the passion and we were talking about this. It's why discipline for us is not punishment. It is that, oh. well, of course, I'm going to do it because it's uh, I've, because it's for the love of the it's thing. It's the
2: structure you create of how you're going to channel your passion because you can't just from passion create life. I'm passionate about it, and so I get to do it, and so now it's wonderful, and I'm going to have this wonderful. Life. No, what are you going to do with the passion? Well, it meant at that time showing up at the bar. There was a time I used to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning to practice with my pointe shoes because I wanted to be a certain character in the Nutcracker at some point. Before I went to class, I had to get the bus at 7 a.m. those days, the school that I was attending. And I'd get up early in the morning to do it. Now, this was not discipline from something I should do and I'm going to hold myself to it. I-, I rebel against that kind of discipline. This was where's there the space for the passion? How yeah. do I create an action plan? or the passion. And that's the importance to me about the understanding of discipline. Because we use the word discipline, and I'm very anti-discipline when it comes to children. That doesn't mean I'm anti-structure, I'm anti-feedback. I'm anti what we think we're doing when we're disciplining children.
1: Which is I'm punishing for... children.
2: Yeah, punishing. I, I am. I'm really not all for that. I think there's a way to help children develop discipline. There's a way to help children develop a way of being. And see, it's because I had this passion to rewrite my childhood and to Mm -hmm. influence other children to have a different experience where you don't feel put down in the process, but you feel uplifted along the way that I had to find how to do that because wanting to do that and how to do that when you don't have a model was not the same thing. And the same thing with the dancing or the singing practicing and doing it every day. This is not discipline because I've decided I want to do something. So therefore I better do it the way you would imagine an adult saying, well, this is what you should do. It's because it's the outlet for that passion to show up and create actions that you show up to on a daily basis or on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now I want to get to something really important because we talk about fear and vulnerability and all those things. And one of the most vulnerable spaces that we can find ourselves in is in the conversations, the tough conversations, the hard conversations, the conversations we do not well, want to have.
2: <laughs> now you understand how I ended up in that space. <laughs> Which is your jam. I, I mean, love that, having difficult conversations because I... I, I love helping people with difficult conversations because when you're talking about difficult difficult conversations, you're talking about what really matters. And when you talk what really matters, you can't not have vulnerability. You can't not have some fear. You can't not have those things that make you so completely human. And that's that's my that's my playground. But now you can see the trajectory of how it all leads to it. But yes, how to have difficult conversations and having so- difficult conversations, it is vulnerable. Yes. Thank you for that segue there. That's exactly how I ended up here, I think.
1: Yeah. Because
2: I had to learn how to have my voice. I had to have a lot of difficult conversations, and I discovered that I could help other people to have those conversations too. Because if you want to show up unapologetically, so for me, that was (laughs) at my last position, telling them why they couldn't afford to, to, to replace me. And and I wasn't trying to make that up. I was trying to help them understand the market and how I was, I was a kind of an anomaly inside the market that would show up once in a while, but it wasn't something they could rely on. But who was I to say that about myself? And I'm maybe there are better ways to say it, right? But to show up that way, I discovered I have to be able to stand in my integrity because then I know I've had my part of the conversation. I need to be able to say truths, but I have to be able to say them in a way that people can hear them. And and then when if they can't, I know it's on them because I've done it in the most compassionate, empathetic way. I'm not sure I did that one in the most compassionate, empathetic way. I'm always learning and tuning. So there's always a better way, you know, by I once you move forward in time and practice. Um but I think it's very much a part of being unapologetic.
0: Mm -hmm. Because when you
2: Know how to apologize well when it's needed. When you know how to be caring of others, which is the thing we're most afraid of, right? We'll let others down. We won't be empathetic. We won't be seen as supportive And along the way. When we're afraid of that, then we can't totally be ourselves. But mm-hmm. we know we can handle those moments. We're so much more empowered. Okay. And there's this kind of quiet charisma that comes when you know you can handle yourself. It doesn't have to be quiet. You can tell I'm not always quiet, but it's that it's an inner thing that allows you to do that. And so that's also like so important to me about why it, people should learn how to be able to handle these kind of conversations.
1: Is and that it, you're gonna,
2: it's, like, just take us off on a hold?
1: But, but it's that thing that majority want to avoid the, the hard conversations because. There's a fear that, the fear of loss, whether it's the fear of loss of self, do I have to give something of myself up in order for this conversation or this space to, to, to stay um, civil? Or the fear of losing the other person, losing the relationship, what does that all mean? And right, so when, right. when you're only facing, when you come into these spaces with all of these fears, what is the first thing that you recommend people to do to even prepare themselves to be willing to have the conversation?
2: The first thing is to realize that what you're doing in your mind when you anticipate that difficult conversation is creating the environment that you're going to step into in that conversation. So when you're saying, here are all the things that could wrong, like what all the things you just said, here's what I stand to lose, here's how it could go, and you're practicing the sentences you know and you're envisioning the different outcomes, you are rehearsing scenarios in your mind and you're playing the what if it all goes wrong game. So the first thing, I don't even have this on my preparation sheet, but the very earliest first thing to respond to the way you proposed it is to realize there's a, what if it goes right game, or there's the, what if I actually am the leader in this conversation game. And there's the, what if I stay coming from a place of openness and love game, that there is a way to have difficult conversations without negativity, without mm-hmm. conflict. There is a way to have it. It just means that it's going to be uncomfortable. Most of the negativity comes from our reaction to the discomfort, as opposed to being able to step into the discomfort. The strength and the leadership, the self-leadership moment is stepping into the discomfort of the conversation, knowing you're going to be a little uncomfortable, knowing that you might reveal more emotion than you mean to. But when you trust that you can handle it, that you can handle each moment as it unfolds, be present in each moment as it unfolds, something very different shows up. Mm -hmm. You don't bring the script that you've rehearsed in your mind. You don't bring the, what if it all goes wrong? You bring the, what if I can show up with full presence? What if I can believe that this person has been doing the best they can? What if I can get clarity on what they're really thinking, where they're really coming from? you can step into whatever version of of that, what if starts to stick and resonate in your mind, but what if it could go well is the big umbrella. That's the big paradigm shift. The next thing is to really know what's at stake for you, because what makes it difficult, whatever that is that you're doing in your mind is to protect your stake. And when you can recognize that and own that, you have a whole lot more power in your conversation. When you go in fighting for it, you're continuing to, participate in the resistance
1: mm-hmm. if
2: you know what it is you know what it is and if you can start to imagine in advance what the other person has at stake and what they're coming into the conversation with um, and empathize with them that you're even that much more ahead and that's the guide that I have I created that I help people go through with which is what's really going on at stake for you what is this really making you feel And what's the underlying need? Underlying, whatever it is in this difficult conversation is somewhere a sense to feel heard, seen, valued, validated. Um, It could be approved, but you have to know why do you need the approval? So there are other variations of that. Those are the core things we usually want. Sometimes it's safety. It's really about security and stability and safety. And those are things we actually have to talk about. Most of the time, it's the others. And when we can start to recognize that that's what we really want and what's at stake for us, and that, well, what's the worst case scenario if I don't get it? We know where we stand and we can stand a whole, we can stamp. We're not dancing and cowering You're trying to make sure and topping one over the other and convincing because that's where our conversations go wrong we're trying to convince the other person we're trying to maintain a certain status or role in the relationship but when we go in knowing what's at stake for us and with more curiosity Mm -hmm. you you can't be judging and curious at the same time so each conversation difficult conversation is an investigation of what's possible this is but since, and the more honest you can be with yourself, the easier it's going to be for you to be honest. And here's the thing: what what we tend to do is go, "You can't talk that way to me." Oh no, no, no! You can't talk that way to me. I don't know if you're talking to your mother, your brother, your sister, whoever. Let's just say. <laughs> if you're then, what makes it okay for you to say that? What are you thinking when you talk that way to me? Where's that coming from? This is a really different question. What are you really upset about? You sound angry. What's what's bothering you? Is a different question, right? So we tend to bring the reactivity in and anticipate other people's reactivity. It takes some self-management and self-leadership to be able to step into the conversation with less reactivity and with more curiosity and ask the questions that we really want to know and come from a place of curiosity in the other person. So I just gave you the general big premises and some stress tactics in there too. I hope you let me talk. I just keep going
1: That's amazing. And I know that you're graciously gifting people this preparation on how to have the hard conversation. So where do they get hold of that?
2: So the, the thing that I invite people to do who are listening, I think the easiest thing is to just know my The text number that I have for this is nine uh, in the States. So I think depending where you're dialing in from, there's some zeros and ones you have to dial. One. That's one. That's one. That's one. 909-833-0978. 909-833-0978. I don't make you give me your email or sign up for anything. Just tell me where you heard me and you'd like the difficult conversations guide. And I will send you the link. It is a Google Drive doc it's nothing fancy. And it has my information there. So then if you're going through that and you wanna talk it over or you want further help, then you can reach out to me and I'm happy to support you. But for this is just, this is for you. This is truly a gift. This is not to get anyone on my email list. This is because I really think you can have better conversations and if we want to have more connection in the world we have to be willing to have these conversations
1: it's time for new conversations to start happening in the world it's time for um curious conversations to start happening in the world with the intention of bringing love into it and i remember when my kids were little I used to encourage them to speak to me about anything and to really tell me how they felt. And what I would do is I would put my hand on their heart and their hands on my heart and go, Mm -hmm. as long as we're speaking heart to heart, anything can be said. And I remember that made such a huge difference in our relationship because I would always speak from heart Instead of going as a mom, what is it that they need to do? How do I need to control their behavior? How do I have to just you know, like right. all of this stuff
2: that's fear based? Getting you into
1: just, all things, of fear-based, fear fear.
2: and a lot of parent um, behavior towards children is fear-based. We're often afraid of, well, who are they becoming? Will they make mm-hmm. the same mistakes I will, or what will people think of my parenting? Am I being a successful parent? These are the often the driving underneath questions that come that are fear-based in the way we behave but when our child experiences when we come from there is the fear emotion or the sense of trying to control them that they that yeah. we don't trust them right So when we come from when we want to be more empowering we have to come from a place of curiosity but all of this by the way goes back to ourselves because the hardest conversations are when we're having with ourselves and almost every hard conversation I say almost because I'm open to the possibility it's not but I kind of think every hard conversation is an extension of an inside conversation. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be hurt. It wouldn't matter if it wasn't something that we were in conversation with about with ourselves. It would just be like, oh, well, that's what happened. That's that relationship. Oh, well. But if you're upset, if it's getting to you, there's something going on for you. And when you can recognize and have that conversation, the other one gets easier. Mm-hmm. And when, you, when you're thinking of it as they think I'm not good enough at this, or they're treating me this way, or they don't respect me, that's a the conversation you're having with yourself. Yeah. That's really, you feel that you're, you care about how someone respects you because you're not sure you're feeling respected. Those are mm-hmm. really the conversations that, that you're having with yourself. And so that's, that's the, that's the underground to get to helping people have better conversations. There's preparation for going into the difficult conversation but even deeper is the conversation you're having with yourself. Because once you're at peace with yourself, you will notice that your conversations around you are much more peaceful. Yeah. Except for my <laughs>
1: husband. <You know. laughs> he
2: doesn't count. <laughs> I know he's the special one. I said, I told him that's how he knows he's special. He's the one that can make me lose my shit. So uh, because it will matter that much. Yeah, and because exactly. I'm human and I still have landmines of things that will trigger me. But I always do that work and we always come around afterwards and I always have something to apologize for and he has something to apologize for and the conversation in the end brought us closer together. And that's the other thing to realize is that as difficult as a conversation is, on the other side of it is deeper connection. Exactly. And take the apology first, on the other side of it is deeper connection. And sometimes I think we're afraid of that intimacy. The difficult Mm -hmm. conversations actually require a certain intimacy or going to lead us towards intimacy. And we have so little of that in our lives sometimes now that I think that's actually what pulls us away from them
1: or from having them. Yeah, people are terrified of being intimate at this time, which is really sad because that's what we all crave and what we all need in our lives. Right. We could go on for another hour, and I'm kind of aware (laughs) of the time here. I might have to invite you back. Um, we might have to do a follow-up call. I think we need to do that. And as we were talking, I'm also thinking, and this is just me speaking out loud, thinking out loud as usual, that there might actually be space for a group conversation of how do we um, create an unapologetic children because so many of us were raised with understanding what we never want our children to experience or how did we did not want to be as parents. What are the cycles that we were committed to stopping? And I think that could be a really powerful conversation to have. Oh, I'm on for it.
2: You got me because the same women who are finding our voice and we want to speak out, we don't know how to help children do that because we still feel to make that we have to make sure our children look obedient and our children, and we don't also like when they speak to us. Yes. They don't like if we. they speak to us a certain way. We have to have the tools to still be able to be who we are and handle how they speak to us without it triggering um, back like other reactions and behaviors, but to help them have a voice and feel like they can be themselves out in the world. And I feel like that's part of what we can do but some of it we have to model because some mm-hmm. i'm watching my teens and there's a certain amount of modeling i've done and there's a certain amount of peer pressure wanting to please their teachers that i don't have control over yes
1: but it's how and, i got all the, and show up in the world with them and all the political stuff that's going on and i'm not just talking about political as in politics but the political correctness and and all of the agendas that are happening at the moment and I look at my kids and, you know, for the most part, they're just kind of like, mom, I'm just fed up with all of this. Like, I just want a normal life. What does normal life look like when we don't have the pressure of having to choose sides all of the time, um, which I'm so grateful I didn't have as as a young person. You know, my life was pretty carefree compared to the um, greater world pressure that they now have via social media but our worlds were very small in comparison to what our children are are dealing with right now.
2: Social media like augments ask- and expands the conversation but what I've noticed is it expands the conversations that you are already having so if yes. you're in negative comparison jealousy conversations you're going to see that all over social media But if social media is about where you connect with friends and you celebrate their wins and you share exciting things going on in your life together, then that's what's magnified through social media. But our kids do have much more exposure to the news, to world events, to various currents, to things that feel threatening and scary uh, than we did in the same way we all do, right? And that's one of the things, and if that's what you mean by pressure, but that's one of the things we're all living with and sometimes can feel very overwhelming. And giving the kids some tools for that is it can be empowering.
1: I left social media for almost two years because I just had enough, and I was just like, "That's it, enough of the bombardment all of the time." And I left the plat- all the platforms for almost two years, and it was what I needed. And I'm so grateful that I did do it because I could go on a completely different growth journey at the time, which was required for me. Um, But it's tough sometimes, I think, that we underestimate just how much we are being given all of the time, how much information, how much conversation um, when we are on these beautiful platforms. And, you know, we could attract all of the good, but some of the the other stuff still filters in every now and again um, onto our news feeds. And I know that for me it's about consistently ensuring that I don't engage in those because AI will pick it up and give me more of that. You know, AI is is the universal law of attraction
0: um, <laughs> on steroids.
1: Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> what you keep focused to, AI will bring you more of, even if it's rotten music that um, <laughs> you right. don't necessarily want to listen to. The question I always ask everybody is, what do you take an unapologetic stand for at this time? Mm.
2: What do I take an unapologetic stand for? My children, children in general, and fairness. The thing that will get me going, the thing that I will get riled up and feel I have to speak out towards is when something's happening in a way that is putting someone else down. I think that's the thing that sparked my whole journey, that it has to be done a different way. Because teachers and adults naturally thought it was their place to put children down as a way of disciplining them or, or helping them to behave. Um, not to, to fault any of those individuals, just to say that that to me, I knew something. And I think that's the same thing, that if I'm in a place where I see somebody being mistreated and being treated unfairly or something going a little bit wrong, I will be unapologetic for. That also includes speaking up when my bill is calculated incorrectly and that's going to look, that's going to be bad for the server. I speak up to the dismay of some of my friends who would have liked the discount that just happened recently. And I've had to take a stand there. Uh, but I will take a stand for, and be willing to take the rotten tomatoes to my face for the things that I think are fair and just in the world.
1: Beautiful. For Thank people's you. voices to
2: be heard. Yes. yes
1: for people's voices to be heard in the diversity that this world is available to us we don't have to agree but we can all listen to the various perspectives and appreciate everybody gets to have their own perspective um yeah. thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on yeah. i'm going to put your contact details um, in the description for everybody i highly recommend anybody who wants to gracefully have difficult conversations um to connect with you and and to just learn from you and absorb your energy your wisdom oozes out of your pores and <laughs> every time we talk i'm just kind of like no that's too short a time um, <laughs> So thank you so much, Leah, for so just sharing everything. Um, this has been such a, a provocative conversation and I'm definitely going to book it in for another show because I think the conversation needs to go even deeper.
2: Yeah, I think when we can have those difficult conversations, it makes it easier to take a stand and be unapologetic because we're not afraid of the, that next step. We're not afraid of that difficult conversation. And and for me, that means with my children and their teachers and being able to advocate for them at school and being able to know that I can handle those conversations in a way that will get us to a, something we can agree on, no matter how we get there, or how it starts, or how I flare in the moment of ugh, my child.
1: Yeah, because it's my baby. Thank you for having me. <laughs> to all the listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and for listening to this conversation. And we look forward to listening to more. Unapologetic Conversations next week. Have an amazing day for this. Cheers.